Good morning. <clears> that <throat> yeah, was half-hearted. Hopefully you guys are awake. I, uh, hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we'd love to get to know you and love to, to shake your hand and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and meet you. Uh, if you're here and you're not a Christian, thanks for being here. And um, I want to say this regularly when we're here because I, I think in some cases, um, churches can sometimes be uncomfortable places for people that, that may not believe in Jesus or may not call themselves a Christian. And, and I just want to say, not only are you welcome here, we're glad you're here, and there's no question off limits. So we believe what we believe, and we're not going to budge off of that, but we do want a dialogue, and we want to process. And, and so if there are questions that emerge and you want to process, we'd love to, to talk with you. Uh, about that, or if there's anything uh, that happens in the service you want to process, we'd love to talk with you about that. Hey, this uh, last Sunday, uh, when we were uh, here, we were praying for a gathering that happened this last week at Frontline Downtown. And I just want to say thank you for praying. I know a number of you were even praying through the week. I think Frontline South had a, had a team uh, praying for 24 hours uh, leading up to this. Uh, and there was a lot of things that... Um, that happened this week, and I went in to this. So we had about 90 pastors from around 35 different churches, uh, both across the U.S., um, literally all across the U.S., and also in the U.K. and India. And um, I went into this week with really, really high hopes. And I try not to do that because it's, I'd rather be surprised upwards than downwards, and so I'm a bit of a pessimist. I'm like, ah, it's going to be horrible. And then I'm happy when it's marginal, right? But I actually went in with a lot of hope and a lot of faith and a lot of anticipation. And um, those expectations were shattered by what God did. Um, I think as a church, we're going to look back years from now on what happened this last week as the beginning of something really beautiful. Because our hope is that as we gathered these pastors, we were able to serve them, but that by connecting these pastors, we would actually connect these churches. And that, that God might do something in those relationships that advances his kingdom in beautiful ways. We had prophetic words and visions that were shared and encouragement uh, for, for pastors that were weary. And it was just a, a beautiful, beautiful um, week. And I want to thank you for praying. And let's continue to pray that God would, do, would, would build off of what started this last week um, to, uh, to serve many. Um, and just the stories. I wish I could recount all the stories of things that are happening. Um, but that would be, we'll do that offline. So if you have questions, I'd love to share some more. Hey, I want to pray for you, and I'm going to ask you to pray for me, um, because we are today beginning a walk through three critically important ch uh, chapters in 1 Corinthians that my prayer, Chad's prayer, our prayer as elders is that it would mark us as a church and shape us as a church. And so uh, we're going to dive in on that, but first let's pray and ask the Spirit of God to speak to us. Spirit of God, would you form us? Would you shape us? Would you empower us? Would you encourage us? Would you teach us today? Father, I, I, I look back on what you've done throughout church history and I'm amazed at the things you've done. And I just am reminded this morning that you never, you didn't stop. You didn't go take a nap. You're not, you're not in the back room uh, catching some little R&R. You're actively at work in our church and in us. And I'm just asking, would you continue that work today? We pray this in hope and we pray this in faith. Jesus' name, amen. Um, some of you know me well enough to know, I mean, I wear this on my sleeve. It's not like I'm hiding this. I'm a nerd, and most of you know that. 
And so what I'm about to say is just going to out, out myself any uh, further. So I just thought I'd name that up front, get, if, clear, clear that out so that we're not uh, wondering whether or not I am. And, and, and the, the, the way that this has been showing itself lately is I have been borderline obsessed by reading and listening over the last couple of years around the development of AI. Uh, now, I'm not, a, I'm not a programmer. I'm not in that space. I've been fascinated by the questions that the people involved in development of AI are asking. So uh, it, in, in many ways, AI for us was you know, something that happened uh, in the beginning of a Terminator that led to uh, all that had to happen there, right? So we're aware of what happens when the computers take over. Uh, but for many of us, AI didn't really, we weren't recognizing the way it was touching our reality until the last couple months, and all of a sudden, some of these technologies have exploded. We've seen images created by computers that blow our mind. We've seen, uh, I mean, the, the computer just passed the LSAT. <clears throat> That's kind of crazy. Um, but over the last couple of years, this has been slowly developing under the surface. And what's been fascinating is listening to leading thinkers in AI talk about the implications of AI. And so this is where it's been fascinating for me because it's led them to raise a number of questions about both the possibilities and the dangers of AI. What are the possibilities? What are the things we need to worry about? But particularly have been the ethical questions. What should be allowed? What shouldn't be allowed? How can we know the difference? But underneath all of that have been a series of questions that most of the people I'm listening to have this conversation aren't even aware of the implications of the things that really matter down underneath the surface because what they're talking about, whether they recognize it or not, or they are discussing what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? Here's the reason this emerges. I was listening to a podcast just the other day, and they were talking about, hey, if these computers continue to advance, what's the difference in a computer and a human? Because this person says, all we are are bouncing chemicals in random patterns. Aren't we just computers? Aren't, isn't, aren't the neurons in our brain just functioning like transistors on a piece of a piece of a board? It's a really interesting question because for those that do not believe in any kind of transcendence, you're left believing that we're nothing more than advanced biological computers. It led me to a book. It's been, uh, I'm actually still in the middle of the book and it's, it's interesting um, and fascinating in a lot of ways. This, this lady, Megan O'Giblin, uh, writes this book. She used to be a Christian. She grew up in a Christian home, left the faith and left theism and is now wrestling with what's the difference between um, things that we call divine and humans. And so she wrote this book called God, Human, Animal, Machine, in which she's trying to explore what actually are the differences or are there differences between these. And she says this quote that has been, that's been churning my soul since I read it. She said, when I considered the sheer scope of the universe... That bizarre realm of wormholes and alternate dimensions that was, that was destined for certain heat death, I felt only Pascalian terror. Proof that she's a bigger nerd than I. I've never used the word Pascalian terror. She said, I felt only Pascalian terror. Proof of my own in, in, insignificance. I'd read enough biology and cognitive science to know that I was basically a machine, albeit a mortal one, subject to the unstoppable drama of entropy. So I turned to the existentialist who insisted that all meaning was subjective and must be forged by the individual. 
She quotes Sartre here when she says, life has no meaning a priori, so it's up to you to give it meaning. Listen to these last two sentences, though. But I didn't want to give life some private meaning. I wanted meaning to exist in the world. Do you hear the haunting of that statement? You see, this isn't just some nerd that loves to talk about AI that feels the, the haunting of that question. We do as well. We feel something that transcends us, but we have a hard time sometimes latching onto it. We recognize that there's something deeper and more profound to our existence, but it's hard to name because you can't put it in a test tube. You can't look at it through a telescope. But central to the Christian faith, friends, is an understanding of reality that is fundamentally supernatural. We don't believe in just a natural world. We don't believe that we're just chemicals bouncing around. There is something deeper and more profound. I just want to say it clearly. Megan O'Giblin is wrong. We are not just machines. And the world is more than biology and cognitive science can describe. The questions of meaning that haunt her haunt us because they are actually tapping into something that's true and real, though something we can't see. So why do I start a sermon about 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 with an illustration about AI? And let me just tell you, the sermon was not written by ChatGPT. <laughs> or was it? If you missed it last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen because we talked about uh, what Jesus said in John 16 about the sending of the Spirit and why it mattered. So we looked at this phrase that John uses that, that Jesus quotes to his disciples when he says, it's right before he's to die crucif through crucifixion, be buried and raised again and ascend to the Father. Right before this happens, he says, it's better for you, friends, that I go away so that I might send the Spirit to you. And so we wrestled, what are the, what are the implications of that phrase? And actually wrestled with the fact that most of us don't actually believe that, that we ought to. That it's actually better to have the Spirit of God in us than to have Jesus side by side with us when we go to work. But what we're looking at right now is I, I, we, we started with John 16 to point to the importance of the Holy Spirit before we step into 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14 because these chapters are about the, the, they're about the Holy Spirit, his ministry in the church, and the gifts that he gives to the church and how they ought to function in the church. We're going to be spending a few months in these three chapters talking about the ministry of the Spirit and spiritual gifts. Now, often people in the church, at least in our day and age, in this part of the country, have a tendency to sometimes to want to avoid questions of the Holy Spirit or avoid questions of spiritual gifts for a couple of different reasons. One of the reasons we often want to avoid it is we just hear so much disagreement. Some people think this about the Holy Spirit, and some people think that, and, and everybody disagrees. And I mean, we're supposed to sing kumbaya and all get along, so let's not bring something into conversation that's going to make us have to pick sides and, and, and go our separate ways. We're afraid of disagreement. One of the other reasons we avoid talking about it is, this, is confusion. There are some things that we're going to talk about in the next couple of chapters that are just simply hard to understand. And it takes work to, in prayer to ask the Spirit to help us understand what does it mean and what do we do with these verses. There's confusion. For some of you, there's hurt and there's pain. You grew up in a church 
maybe that was not careful, not biblical, not restrained in understanding how the Spirit of God worked in their midst, and there was things done or said that scarred you. And, and this was my upbringing. Like, I held some of these things at an arm's distance for a while because of things I saw that were concerning to me, and it made me pull back and not want anything to do with it. And then, fourthly, sometimes we don't talk about spiritual gifts because we just think they're unnecessary. We don't really need to talk about it. I mean, look, we've got the Bible. Um, we've got like Tim Keller's sermon archives. Like, I think we're good. I think we're good. We, we don't really need the Holy Spirit. He was, he was helpful in the beginning, but we got it from here. We're stepping right into these chapters because those things aren't true. We desperately need the Holy Spirit and his work among us. Desperately. So before we get to 1 Corinthians and look at spiritual gifts, I want us to start by looking at the book of Acts. The book of Acts. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the book of Acts is, is, uh, is the book that describes the founding of the church after Jesus ascended to heaven. So Jesus came to earth, did ministry. There are three gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that talk about his ministry on this earth. And the book of Acts talks about, and it's, it's fascinating the way that he, Luke starts a book. He says, this is, these are the things that Jesus did through his church after he ascended. And it's the beginning of the church. The church has been around for 2,000 years. And it's about the the beginning stages. But what's fascinating is you can't read the book of Acts without seeing the centrality of the work of the Holy Spirit through it. I'd encourage you this week, go read Acts. It's 28 chapters, that's four chapters a day, and you can get through it this week. And I want you to read it and ask the question, where's the Holy Spirit work in this section? And you'll just find there's not a a page not touched. There's There's not a page in which the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned in the book of Acts. But let's start with Acts chapter 1, starting with verse 4. And while staying with them, he, speaking of Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Listen to this, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What's fascinating about this is Jesus is saying, this is after his resurrection. His disciples have spent the last 30 or so days with him as he's been doing ministry on this earth, 30 to 40 days. And, and uh, or actually, yeah, 40 days. This is 40 days afterwards. And he's talking with them and he says, hey, I know you're eager to go tell the world that I'm alive, but I'm, he's saying, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until the spirit comes. It's a weird thing to try to put a damper on that kind of news propagation, isn't it? And then 10 days later, in an upper room in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit descends. And what we see in chapters 2 and chapters 4, chapters 2, 3, and 4 of Acts is the empowerment of the Spirit as he fills the disciples in fulfillment of what he promised in Joel 2. Peter preaches this message uh, in the face of much opposition. And when the the church gathered to prayer and they were were a little afraid of what the authorities were going to do, the room shook when the Holy Spirit showed up. He empowered them for ministry. In chapter 5, we see how he purified his church by calling out sin and exposing sin. 
in chapters 10 and 13, we see how he, uh, we see that how the church is sent by the Spirit. Paul and Barnabas in chapter 13, the, the, the church, the, the elders at, um, uh, in, in this church uh, are, are praying, and, and in the midst of that, the Spirit of God says, hey, Paul and Barnabas are to be sent out to plant other churches. Let them go. In chapter 16 and 17, we see, the, we see Paul and the apostles being led by the Spirit in the way that they speak and even where they go. It's, at one point, it says that Paul was resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem because the Spirit had called him there. And then at the end, in chapter 20, or towards the end, in chapter 20, Paul is with the, or with the, the elders at a church that he planted in Ephesus, and he just talks to them about how the Spirit of God formed them, founded them, and will sustain them in the ministry and the calling that he's given them. And on and on and on. I skipped so many references to the Spirit in Acts, but why do I say that? I say that because what you cannot separate is the formation, the establishment, and the empowerment of the church from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is at work all through Acts, and the church in Corinth was planted in that same season. As Paul is going to planting churches, one of them is Corinth. So what's going on in Corinth? Well, see, Corinth has heard the stories of how the Holy Spirit descended in the upper room. He heard the stories of how the Spirit directed the leaders at Antioch to send Paul and Barnabas out to plant churches. They heard stories of how God was empowering ministry in church after church and place after place all across this area of the globe. They hear these stories and they're like, we, we, can, we can walk by the Spirit too. And they, and they did, but they weren't awesome at it. They just weren't. Like, scholars will tell us that at least mar part of the reason that Paul is writing this part of the letter is because of abuses that were happening in the, in, the, in, the, in the church as they were trying to walk by the Spirit and just not doing awesome at it. They just weren't doing awesome at it. You see, they had been exchanging letters with Paul. 1 Corinthians is at least the second letter that Paul has written to them as he corresponds with them. Um... And in one of these letters, it, it, they, they write to him asking him about spiritual things or about spiritual persons. This idea of uh, the, the first verse there, translated spiritual gifts, is, is, it could be tr translated in different ways. There. But they're asking Paul, help us, and here's the reason why. There are people in the church that are flaunting their gift of tongues, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. They were flaunting this gift of tongues, and there were other people like, y'all are nuts, you're crazy dangerous, I don't want anything to do with you, and we're backing away from the gift of tongues and just treating it as something that was inconsequential. There was misuse happening, and because of the misuse that was happening, division and confusion arose in that church. But here's the beautiful thing about the church of Corinth. They had the humility to ask for help. They have the humility to ask for help. You see, what I love about Paul's response to them is if, if it was me and I heard these reports, I'd just probably tell them, all right, um, you're all on probation. No more gifts of the Spirit. No more teaching about the Spirit until I get you guys straightened out. That's not what he does. Matter of fact, he's going to end this section by telling people, hey, I know that there's been abuses in this. Don't forbid anybody from speaking in tongues. I want you to continue to, to, to exercise the gifts. I just want you to do it the right way. So he brings correction, 
by, by teaching and instructing. And the reason he does is because he knows how important it is for the work of the Spirit of God in their church. He's not going to tell them, hey, stop walking by the Spirit because he knows how essential the work of the Spirit is to the work of the church. So he's not going to push pause on it. So why do we need these chapters? I mean, isn't this something that just that Jesus did way back then through his spirit and, 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 and the spirit kind of got the church heading in the right direction and then went back and, and went on vacation for a while? No, that's not what's happening. You see, they faced many things as a church and they need, or as a church and they need the spirit to empower them and we face many things in which we aren't, we don't have what we need to face. You see, we live in a world saturated by all kinds of ideologies that are not of the Spirit. Things that sound like wisdom. They sound really smart. They sound really wise. They just don't work. We live in a, in a culture that has thrown off this inheritance of Christian ethics and said, we'll figure it out on our own, and it's already turning into a disaster. We see, we see and experience regularly the brokenness of a creation marred by sin. We need God to heal our minds and our bodies, and we need God to carry us through dark times of life. You see, we face not just these ideologies and not just this brokenness due to sin. We face spiritual realities. Paul tells us in, in Ephesians 6 that you wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in the spirit realms. He's telling us there are forces in the spirit that are opposed to the Holy Spirit that you are doing battle with whether you recognize it or not. There are spiritual realities that you are not even aware of. You see, frontline, we as a church need discernment, which is why one of the gifts of the Spirit that we'll talk about in the coming weeks is the gift of discernment. We need truth, and it's a beautiful reminder that Jesus, when he talked in John 16 about the Spirit, said he would lead us into all truth. We need gifts of wisdom. Frontline, we need power, we need endurance, we need action, and all of this is given to us by the Spirit of God. We've been going through 1 Corinthians at a, at a decent clip. And if you're, what you'll notice over the next couple of weeks is that we're going to hit a little bit of the brakes. We're going to pump them and go a little bit slower through these next three chapters. And here's why. These three chapters are critical for our life and ministry as a church. They're critical. We need, we, we say we say up front that we as a church want to be filled by the Spirit. We want to be a Spirit-filled church because the temptation for all churches, but especially for a young church like ours, a church like ours, we are tempted to do ministry and to do life on our own strength, with our own technique, with our own systems, with our own wisdom, and with our own power. And let me just say this very clearly. If we do that, we will fail. We need, we must frontline, have the Spirit of God in us, empowering us for the work he's called us to do, or we will fail. This is why we're going to slow down and spend some time in these chapters. There's going to be some hard work, but there's also going to be some really beautiful invitations for us as a church to step towards. So what I want to do today is I want us to look at these first seven verses, and, I, and, and what we're not going to do is get into a lot of the details of what's coming in the coming chapters. 
What I want us to do is, I think in these first seven verses, there are five things that we can learn that frame up and kind of create a foundation for the work that we're going to do over the next couple of weeks, okay? So I want to give you five things that I see emerge in these six, in these seven verses that I think will give us a framework and a foundation for which we can work over the next couple of weeks looking at these chapters. So let's start by looking at the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. It is really important to understand, friends, point the first point I think Paul is saying here is that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is Christ-centered. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is Christ-centered. You see, a lot of, I see a lot of churches that will call themselves spirit-filled or charismatic in which it feels like the whole focus is on the Spirit. The Spirit this, the Spirit that, the Spirit this, the Spirit that. But, but, the, but the, the reality is that what we see in the text is that the Spirit was never showed up on the scene going, hey, look at me. The Spirit, when he shows up, says, look at Jesus. Look at the finished work of Jesus. Look at the rule of Jesus. Jesus is Lord. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is Christ-centered. Friends, if we are a Spirit-filled church, we will be a Christ-centered church. We will talk actually more about Jesus because of the Spirit's work among us. Look there where he says this, that therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. I want you to recognize these words. The only way that you can have faith in Jesus is that the Holy Spirit gave you faith to believe. Your faith and trust in Jesus is a gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, this Jesus is Lord was not a, uh, a cute phrase that they found on wall art they picked up at Mardell's. In, in that world, in the Roman world, there was a phrase that was stamped all over the place that says, Caesar is Lord. That was a known phrase. It was, it was a, the original political statement slogan thrown around in the Roman Empire. Caesar is Lord. What what, what the Spirit does is not come in with like a, a, a cheap bumper sticker tagline. He actually subverts the very claim of Rome by saying, no, 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 Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And why did they say that? Because the Spirit gave birth to their faith and their testimony. They believed that Jesus is Lord because of the work of the Spirit, and they declared that Jesus is Lord because of the work of the Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we cannot trust Jesus. Point number two, let's look at verse four before we get into this. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every 
one. I think one of the critical pieces of understanding uh, what, what it means to, to, to understand the gifts of the Spirit is to recognize that the point number two, the work of the Spirit is Trinitarian. The work of the Spirit is Trinitarian. There are ways in which churches kind of see this, the work of the Spirit as, as a bit, bit of, a, uh, of, of a ministry point two, or a ministry 2.0, like, hey, Jesus did some good stuff, but have you ever seen what the Spirit does? Hey, let me, let me just let you in on a little, a, 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 a really critical piece of information. The Holy Spirit did not go to God the Father and go, hey man, the Son did some cool stuff, but I got some ideas. Why don't you let me go? I'm going to go do some stuff. Everything that happens by the Spirit involves all of God. There is one God. The fundamental to Christian doctrine is that there's one God, not three gods that happen to meet at a bar someday and they're like, hey, we should hang out more often and do some stuff together. That's not what it is. It's not three gods. It's one God, but three gods manifest in three or on display in three persons. I don't understand it and I, you don't either. But one God, three persons, and those three persons do not work independent of each other. I give more evidence to my nerd card by using this phrase that theology uses of inseparable operations. Inseparable operations. This is the theological principle that tells us that the spirit never goes rogue. Jesus doesn't do stuff over here and then inform the Father about it later. Everything that the Father does and the Son does and the Spirit does, they do inseparably connected. And so when the Spirit of God is at work, God the Father is at work. When the Spirit of God is at work, Jesus is at work. They are distinct but not separate. And what's beauty is he, here he talks about the variety, varieties of gifts, the varieties of service, the varieties of activities, but the same Spirit, Lord, and God. In other words, what he's saying is out of the unity of the Godhead actually becomes diversity of gifts in the body. That not, not, we're not all given the same set of gifts. We're not all given the same set of abilities. We actually are given varieties of things for each other. The work of the Spirit is Trinitarian. Look at verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common Good. I think the third point that we take away from these passages is that spiritual gifts are communal gifts. Spiritual gifts are communal gifts. In other words, the Spirit does not give you a gift for you to go hide in some room somewhere and just, and, and, and just exercise that gift completely isolated from the body or, or with no impact on what happens in the body. There are gifts that God gives to us that fill us up individually. I'm not saying that that's not the case. He does do that. He does speak to us as individuals, but those gifts are meant to share. It says, to each is given a manifestation for the common good. Your gifts that are given to you by the Spirit are for the body. Now, I also want to draw your attention to those first two words, to each. Because I don't know, but, it, but there may be some people in the room going, I've, I've been following Jesus for a really long time. I think I'm spirit-filled, but I don't think I have any gifts. And I just want to say, yeah, you do. You may not fully yet understand them. You may not, fully, uh, you may not have, have, have fully wrapped your mind around how that, is, how that operates. Maybe fear has kept you from 
engaging or maybe confusion has kept you from engaging, but every single one of you in this room, if you have trusted Jesus, have been imparted or have been, uh, the spirit has been sent to dwell in your hearts and he has given you gifts for the church. If you are not sharing your gift, friends, we are all poorer for it. Those gifts show up in how we engage on Sundays for one another. Those gifts show up in how we engage on community groups through the week and how we serve one another. Those gifts show up in our discipleship and how we engage in our discipleship groups. How we, did, how we engage our neighbors and our neighborhoods. And it engages conversations over coffee that the Spirit of God is at work in us for each other. The spiritual gifts are communal gifts. And we need to recognize that if God's given us gifts to serve others, then he's given gifts to other people to serve us. Lone Ranger Christianity is not Christianity. There's a predominant way of seeing what it means to be faithful to Jesus that modern evangelicalism has smuggled in and it's not coming from the Bible. The sense of like, I can follow Jesus by just hanging out by myself and listening to some Matt Chandler sermon podcast and that's good for my soul and I don't need anybody else. That thought is demonic. You need the body. You need the body of Christ with you. You need his church. Not because his church is perfect. Not because everybody in this room is going to get everything right. You need the church because God has given them gifts to serve you with and given you gifts to serve them with. So look back at verse 7 because there's something else I want to pick up on. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I think this points us to a fourth piece, uh, a fourth frame in this conversation that spiritual gifts are eschatological. Say that five times fast. Spiritual gifts are eschatological. Now, and the reason I use a, a word like this is because there are certain words that may feel and sound archaic, but they're actually really important for Christian theology. And this is one of those. Eschatology is simply a theological understanding that what will happen in the future, that God will do in the future, actually shapes how I live in the present. That eschatology gives me a lens to what's coming in the future in order to shape what I do in the present. Now, sometimes eschatology gets caught in conversations about what's going to happen when and what's it going to look like when Jesus comes back and what are the seven years before that going to look like and we try to answer all these questions. And let me just say this. There are things that the Bible tells us that are happening that will happen and we just don't have a lot of clarity on the details of that. But what it does tell us is that what God will do affects how we live now. that we live our life now in the reality that Jesus has already secured final victory over Satan, sin, and death and will one day bring that victory to a full consummation. To this point, we still wrestle with sin and Satan and death. But there will come a day when those that have been redeemed by Jesus will be free from all three. But fundamental to Christian eschatology lie a number of tensions. And one of the problems is that we're not good as Western Americans at living in tensions because we like comfort. Tensions fundamentally make us feel a little uncomfortable at times. 
One of the fundamental tensions of Christian eschatology is what we call the already and the not yet. There are things that God has already done in Jesus and by his spirit that have not yet been fully consummated as they will be in the future. And we live between the pole of what God has done and what God will do. The already and the not yet. But I think as we engage with the work of the Spirit, there's another couple of tensions we find ourselves in. We find ourselves in the tension between the ordinary and the extraordinary. You see, there are a number of people that want to reduce the work of the Spirit to just kind of, I mean, he's he's just there and he helps me understand the Bible and he encourages me when I'm discouraged. But he never really heals anybody. He never really does anything dramatic. Prophetic words, that's not really a thing anymore. And he doesn't do crazy stuff like he used to do. He's just, he's just ordinary. And then there's some people that in their understanding of the Holy Spirit, all they think about is the extraordinary. If you just have enough faith, then God will heal you. If only this, then there will be fireworks and sparks. And if there's not, then you're just not in tune with the Spirit. And I just want to say, it's not either or, it's both and. There are things that God does, the Spirit of God does in you that you're not even aware he's doing it. And then there are times he shows up in ways you just can't deny. And I don't know why he shows up in, in extraordinary ways one day and doesn't the next. I don't know. But I can attest that both are things I've experienced. And I think he calls us to live in both. Another tension I think we have to inhabit is the tension between receiving and waiting. Receiving and waiting. There are things that he has given us and there are things he will give us. And we stand in a moment sometimes waiting between the two and feeling pulled by the two. The fact that he has not given it yet does not mean he won't give it in the future. And the last is this, word and spirit. There's a lot of tension inside the American church between this, between churches that will call themselves word churches and churches that will call themselves spirit churches. We preach the Bible We think the Holy Spirit's still active. Again, can we have both? Can we have both, please? Because the Bible teaches both. The Bible is our authority, and the Spirit of God never does something contrary to the Word of God. So if I sense the Spirit of God saying something, and it doesn't line up with Scripture, then let me just tell you, it wasn't the Spirit, it might be indigestion. But there are things that the Lord, that the Spirit speaks in a moment that aren't here. They're not against this, but they're not here that are actually for us, that lead us to here and lead us to Jesus. We're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. There's a fifth thing I want us to look at before we close, and that's actually found by us going back to verse 1. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Why would I land the plane there? I land the plane there because walking by the Spirit, receiving the gift of the Spirit is not like Neo in the Matrix learning Kung Fu. You remember this, that scene? Pretty awesome, isn't it? Like they just plug him into the computer and he, he wakes up and he's like, I know Kung Fu. I mean, like, can you imagine, like the things that I wish I could plug into my brain, I just would love to be like top-notch chef. Like I'd just love to know what I was doing and I didn't burn stuff when I cooked it. I would, I'd love to just be able to download information and, and, uh, and all these things. Uh, that's not the way the spiritual gifts work. I think what this verse teaches us is this, that spiritual gifts must be learned, developed, honed, and matured. 
that spiritual gifts must be learned, developed, honed, and matured. You see, what Paul is going to do in these three chapters is teach the church how to follow the Spirit and how to, how to handle the gifts he's given properly. He's instructing them. He said, hey, I don't want you to be uninformed. That might just be a simple way of going, I don't want you to do crazy stuff. I don't want you to do unhelpful stuff. I don't want you to be out of control. I want you to be following the Spirit. And so here's what does. Paul steps into these three chapters, and he'll call for correction, but he won't call for cessation. He won't tell them to stop using the gifts. He's going to correct their use. He's going to bring encouragement, not shame. He's going to instruct and model, not control and flaunt. Paul is going to shape them and teach them. I'm not a great preacher. And you're like, I know. But I do think that the Lord has given me a gift to teach the Bible to some degree. But you know what I've had to do over the years is actually learn how to use that gift. It doesn't come out of the box. It's not just plugged into my head. It's something you, I feel like I've been given, but I've got to learn. And you guys have gifts like that too. You've been given gifts, but those gifts have to be learned. They have to be understood. They have to be processed. And they have to be done. that has to be done in community for the community to help me know how to walk in the gifts that the Spirit of God has given me. But let's be very clear, frontline. We as a church are desperately, we desperately need to learn and to lean into the ministry of the Spirit to be the church he's called us to be here in Canadian County. We cannot do what he's called us to do apart from the work of the Spirit among us. This is not an optional, optional add-on. And frontline, we as pastors are going to lean into this. We're not going to shy away because it can be messy. We're not going to shy away from the work of the Spirit because there's things that can get difficult and challenging at times. We're not going to do that. We're not going to shy away because it's hard to understand at times. We're going to press in to the Bible and to church history and to teaching of the, the, the people that God has brought around us to help us understand these things. And we're not going to shy away because of our past experiences. We're going to press in. Chad and I've talked a lot about this, and this is not just at you. This is all of us, and he and I own this even as, as pastors in this church. I think this is one of the areas that we're weak as a church. Now, I actually do think that there's a lot of spirit-filled things happening. Some of them we're not aware of, and some of them we're aware of. Like, there are people in the church that are really pressing in to, to, the, to the gifts that God's given, and we're seeing a lot of fruit in community groups and discipleship groups. There's a lot of beauty happening. So I'm not trying to act like there's none of this, but I do think it's an area of weakness for us. I think there's a part in which we're a little afraid to step out because we're not sure what's going to happen. And here's what I'm asking you as one of your pastors. Is with me, will you press into this over the next couple of months? I need to learn. You need to learn. I don't want us to be a church that's spirit-filled in name only. I would rather quit leading in this church than for us to just like twiddle our thumbs and act like we're doing a thing, but we're leaving the spirit behind. Will you join us together over the next couple of months to press in, not just to understand what Paul teaches in these chapters, but to practice it? Is, are there going to be questions that arise? Yep. Are there going to be people that are really excited and others that are like, I'm not so sure I'm excited? Yes. Do I expect all of us to arrive at the same understanding on the same day? No. 
But if you're, if you're concerned by something or questions arise or you're not sure what to do with something, let me just please ask you, don't, don't slide out the back door and just go find another church without pressing in and, and, and hearing what the Spirit of God might do. Let's press into these chapters together. And as we do, I want to ask us to do it with, with, the, the, with these postures. I want us to, to pursue these chapters as a people full of desire, a full of desperation for the Spirit, and a full of dependency on the living God.